Hey, Panoptic listeners, or if you're a newcomer, welcome and we're so glad to have you with us. Just for your awareness, this is part two of our conversation on automation in the growth economy. If you haven't listened to part one, I recommend hitting the pause button here, going back and listening to episode eight first. Better yet, if you're very interested in learning about automation, its economic effects and surrounding discourses, I recommend starting with episode seven called Does Automation Kill Jobs? So just to recap, episode seven focuses on local political discourses surrounding automation and offshoring. The conversations our political candidates and voters are having on the ground. Episode eight kicks off with our exploration of the critique of the automation discourse, taking a more global systemic perspective through the lens of what theorist Aaron Benavov calls system overcapacity. And today, episode nine, we continue right where we left off, exploring policy solutions like UBI and the Green New Deal to address declining labor demand and much more. All right, and I hate to be a pest, but if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show, give us a rating and a review on your favorite pod player to help others discover the podcast. And with that out of the way, I really hope you enjoy part two of our conversation on automation in the growth economy. The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host Juan Pablo. Well, there he is. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. Let's make sure we're fully capturing this concept of system overcapacity mm-hmm. at risk of beating a dead horse here. So, Benavov is essentially saying that the developed world has produced too much, that it lacks the quantity of consumers with sufficient wages to consume the abundance of good goods produced. That firms are trying to compensate for this to maintain profit by generating cost savings through automations and offshoring and cutting their workforces because it's really the only thing they have left to do. And really, you know, from a, from a business perspective, a firm automates or offshores not to d- delay systemic overcapacity, but to produce more for less and to remain competitive. And this, mm-hmm. of course, relates to what Benavov is talking about, but is not a conscious act. It's just business as usual. Right. So this it's of over adapting. Yeah. And the concept of overcapacity is, is, is really abstracted away from what we feel as business people on the ground. So let's think about classical economics again for a minute. Um, it, it'll have us believe that the notion of excess supply is really nonsensical because any good will be consumed at equilibrium price. And meanwhile, Keynes later introduced the concept of sticky wages, where in a recession, there's excess supply because everyone is afraid to spend, coupled with the primary holders of capital hoarding wealth for a period of time before slowly reinvesting that capital back into the markets. Thus, you know, tax cuts are typically not effective at raising the economy back up. Instead, instead you need to stimulate spending by injecting money into the markets through federal interventions. But even for Keynes, as I understand him, in the long run, supply meets demand and the economy comes back into equilibrium. So, and I, I think we've covered this enough at this point, but still, what, what would the, 
Well, what's the Benavavian answer to system over capacity, this concept of, of system over capacity kind of existing outside the classical framework? Why, why, why is it so hard to, you know, conceptualize this concept from a classical economic standpoint? I, th I think, honestly, it has to do with the fact that classic economics deals in equations, in abstract equations that have an abstract uh, anthropology of man, uh, of the human, and that don't, and it doesn't, it can't deal with things like geography and things like saturation of markets. But let's give an example of, I think, a good example of what, why, uh, what classic economics can account for this problem, I think, is uh, at least as a difficulty accounting for this problem. And I think an excellent uh, example is post the post-World War II era, right? The U.S. comes out of the war. It, uh, it has a tremendous industrial capacity. It can produce, you know, massive amounts of industrial goods. It's basically created uh, a command economy, right? Where it's forced its firms to produce tanks, ships, well, you name it, to win the war, right? Um, rationing goods and services, uh, forcing firms to do what the government needs it to do to win the war effort, firing CEOs if they refuse to give uh, let their workers unionize. I mean, the fact of the matter is, if you look at the history of what the of the what the U.S. did during World War II, it's something close to a sort of centrally planned social democratic system, right? Hmm. With actually, with more social than democratic in some senses. Uh, but they're able to produce, you know, system or by the end of the war, it can produce a lot of stuff. It has no markets. Japan, Germany. Europe are destroyed. Latin America is not developed. It doesn't have masses of middle class people. Um, it has. It's an. It's a very urban. Um, it's a very urban uh, continent, but it doesn't have the masses of middle class people that could consume the U.S. goods. Africa is is. A, it doesn't have the the masses of middle class people. Neither does Asia. Right. China does not. China is a peasant society in some ways. Um, you can imagine. So, what is the problem here? Uh, the problem is you can produce so many things. Your middle classes in the United States are going to be able to consume a lot of those, but you're going to need markets for your goods. You're going to need markets for your industrial goods. And the U.S. realizes that it's going to have to bring Japan and Germany into the fold. What does it do? It does something the market could not do. Maybe in the long run it could do it, but not anytime soon, which is it gives technology away and it gives capital away. It gives money and it gives technology to Germany and Japan. It allows them to build up their industrial, uh, uh, an industrial base, uh, a manufacturing base, and an export-led uh, expansion model. It opens up its markets to Japan and to, and to Germany. It says, you can, you, know, you can sell your stuff in our markets, um, and we're going to give you cap. And, and it basically allows these countries to, to grow their economies, create large middle classes that, that can consume American products, but that eventually become competitors to, with American uh, producers. And at some point, they find themselves at system of capacity. The markets that exist for industrial products and manufacturing products and goods are, are there's, a, there's a basically an excess of demand, right? Mm 
this doesn't mean that there aren't there aren't people around the world who are would love wouldn't love to have a fridge or a car or whatever it is name it right but if those people aren't tied into if those people aren't tied into the global economy as salaried masses um that firms are willing to to sell their things to at a price where they can make a profit it's just not going to happen right um you know try to imagine a far a poor farmer in, in africa buying uh, a volkswagen it's just not going to happen right uh, this is what system over capacity means it means at some point you can let the market somehow try to figure out a systemic issue uh, which it has a really hard time figuring out because at the individual firm so let's get i think let's get back at this point to what i think is really interesting about vernavav's explanation and the, why there hasn't been any sector of the economy um, that has stepped in to replace industry as a motor for economic growth and why it's really hard for uh, the market itself to be reflective on its something like system overcapacity. And here it seems to me that there is an element of Venevav's argument that is missing, right? Which is what we just taught, touched upon, this idea of, you know, transfers of technology and capital. A manufacturing sector that could export goods, um, you know, abroad, including to the U.S., and could produce salaried middle classes that was produced by basically the U.S. giving away technology and and capital something that a firm is just not going to do by itself right this 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 is industrial policy this is politics um what does this tell you and this to me this is the fascinating thing about benavav's argument and that remains a yet as as yet a little bit not sort of subtle or not articulated and in order to kick off total output growth again new middle classes would be have would have to be produced in places where they don't exist and this would be would have to be done through technology and capital transfers, as was done with the U.S., you know, with Germany and Japan in the post-war era. And markets, which are competition and price-driven, that is, they operate via the medium of money, which gives you sort of just the basic information you need to know as a consumer uh, or as a producer to sort of like through the tug of uh, supply and demand to equalize prices across similar products and services. Markets cannot operate at this higher level of being reflective of, of capitalism as a system markets can't do what a state can do which is produce industri produce industrial policy which is decide how are we going to move resources how are we going to create markets uh, to do what we want them to do in terms of a sort of overall uh in uh, sort of social and industrial policy they cannot respond to system over capacity it is against their nature to think beyond the frame of existing competition and, and uh, frameworks and existing institutional arrangements. Firms and consumers who are the agents of capitalism, they're the ones that, by the way, are hard-coded into the, into the, into the very uh, mathematical equations of capitalism, who are oriented by the media of money and its signals, have no language, no, no language, no mathematical equations, no framework, no, no motivation, right? A firm has no motivation to give technology to African farmers. Uh, no, no motivation to give capital to to you know to to constituencies that have nothing to give it in return, uh, we, like the U.S. did with Germany and Japan. Uh, so they have no capacity to thematize and tackle the problem like system overcapacity, at least in the short term. Now, whether we believe in the long term capitalism could do it, I think is another question. The government may be able to incentivize that kind of market behavior, right? There are things the government can do to make companies want to do that. Give away right. technology? 
Potentially, yeah. I mean, whether it's share it. some kind of other benefit yeah. down the line. Or I have a few examples that we can discuss later. But, you know, well, th that and, goes back to how yeah. we kind of think about re-internalized negative externalities. There there mm. could be ways of getting the markets to act in, in a way that's better for society. But, you know, there, there's a risk of also creating, you know, the impression that the, the government is strong-arming businesses into doing things that they wouldn't naturally do. Yeah, well, I mean, I don't think that's, first of all, I don't think that's new. And we've seen it in, we've seen it with World War II, for instance, the the sort of example I was giving you, and, and I don't think it's new at all at any point. The the people like to believe that uh, that there's such a thing as a free market, and I I like to I like to tell people when they say that that that's a nice little story to tell yourself. But there has never been a, such a thing as a free market. Governments, whether you're talking about the you know the British, you were you talking about the early uh, ages of capitalism with with uh, England and its sort of empire and and in uh, policy imperial policy and and, uh, and commercial policy in places like india that are very central to the growth of the of the british economy or policy related to cotton in places like the united states and england um slave ownership there's never been a sort of free market ideal of sort of just people you know selling and sort of like selling and buying things without some kind of institutional framework and some kind of industrial policy behind it which was very much about f forcing co uh, um, companies into a specific framework. You could talk, for instance, about the housing market in the United States. This is, you know, this is a market that doesn't exist until the 1920s and 30s, when the U when the U.S. government basically creates a, a housing market for ownership. Before that, there was no housing market for ownership. The U.S. government creates things like FDIC insurance. It creates um, standards for what you need to do to get FDIC insurance when you build a house. Um, you know, you could go on and on and it creates products like a 30, you know, it creates, it, it allows banks to create things like a 30 year mortgage that then allowed uh, people to actually say, okay, well, we're going to build the houses for, for, for consumership because there are these loans now that means that people can slowly pay for something that is very expensive, like a house and that right. nobody has at least no middle-class person just has uh, a lot of enough money to uh, just sitting around to buy something like a house. So, so you know, I think this is a large, a bigger question of the history of capitalism, but this is by no means new. Um, well, so if we accept Benavov's diagnosis, is the solution at all to seek new ways of generating growth? You know, you said that we have to produce new middle classes where they don't exist, but in the long run, isn't there a limit to how much the world can grow? And do we need a new kind of economy that doesn't require real aggregate growth all the time, but rather an economy that is tied to other types of measures and sustainability? Yeah, I think those are key questions, Jason. Um, I think the maybe they're still left for another episode, but uh, capitalism has to grow, right? It has to grow. That's the way it works. Um, unless you manage to reconfigure it so that markets somehow aren't tied to the necessity to growth, which I think is, I would leave it as sort of a hypothetical question, um, which may be able to be done. I'm not sure. But what we have, so I think this is where I want to bring it to this question we brought up at the, the beginning, which is that here we have a communications and coordination problem and also a political issue um, because there are agents with lots of stake in the present system who are not, again, you know, who are not against any, who are not going to be for things like 
giving a bunch of technology and capital away. For instance, if you're trying to, let's say, reinvigorate the market system, uh, reconfigure the market system and create new ways of growing manufact the manufacturing uh, sector. And this leads to a question. So what would be an institutional solution to this problem of system-wide overproduction and stagnation, right? Like, just as you were asking, do we need, um, is it, you know, is this a problem of the limit of growth? Do we need a new kind of economy that doesn't require aggregate growth all the time? Um, well, one thing, you, you know, if you kept sort of the notational an institutional system of market capitalism. So you still guided your things yourself by GDP. Firms still relied on profit. Um, uh, you still had uh, you you still tied work to salaries, for instance. Um, so you know how, you see how all these elements are connected to, together. You need uh, market capitalism relies on private growth through you know the growth of value add. The growth of profit, uh, the growth of salaries, and things like that. You could create new frameworks for the markets to drive, uh, to drive uh, new frameworks to drive the markets to produce manufactured goods. So real things, tangible things, which is where value add historically has come from. And you know, how do we do this about after World War II, specifically in the United States, because we also had policies in the United States that that grew the economy. We built highways, we built the suburbs. And the suburbs, of course, uh, were car sort of center around the car, right? The car industry is so central to the U.S. economic growth, right? Which is why the problem of car industry has been so traumatic for the U.S. and for places like the Midwest. How do we do this? Again, transfers of capital. We gave money to people that didn't have it. You gave, you take all these, all these soldiers returning from the war and you basically give them very preferential loans, uh, free education, basically so they can buy houses and things of that nature. But these systems seem to be at overcapacity. Uh, think, for instance, of the gridlock and the housing prices in the you know where you live, the D.C. metro area. Uh, think of the overinvestment in large metropolitan regions like L.A., San Francisco, D.C., and New York, where housing is extremely expensive, right? Uh, and think about the lack of investment in the Rust Belt, stagnant and empty houses and factories, where I live. And you see the empty houses everywhere. Um, you, know, you In short, you would need to create new frameworks for the markets to be able to produce value add, but the market isn't able to do this just by itself, at least uh, on any kind of scale in the short run that uh, we might find manageable for the current problem. Um, the market needs a new institutional framing, a new code is one way maybe to think about that. Yeah. Our, our infrastructure is falling apart in many parts of the U.S. and the world. And you and I both worked for a company that, you know, whose whose entire business, you know, thrived on government contracts to repair infrastructure. You know, there's government contracting operates somewhat outside the realm of the markets. It's tied to policy and tax dollars, but the process is still competitive. So, you know, might you be suggesting an expansion of this kind of competitive framework to direct well, resources toward? critical social needs like infrastructure faster that would be, i mean that would be one way to do it right which is exactly what we did after world war ii it wasn't it wasn't state central planning it was industrial policy industrial policy was we are going to give loans to people but we're not going to build the houses we're not going to run you know the government wasn't building public housing even though it actually it was but it wasn't its primary um framework for housing 
the population. We gave loans to, to people to buy private housing. You had um, private builders, contractors, people building and, and making profits of this stuff, right? You had basically a transfer of capital. You gave money to people who didn't have it to buy things that could then be produced by private firms. So that's one way to do it. Industrial policy is a way to sort of like move uh, move resources around in order to create markets and create um, spaces for consumption of certain goods and services. So that's one way to do it. And I think this is this gets to, you know, uh, you talked about how you were partial to Yang last episode, to Andrew Yang. And this is why I'm partial to Bernie Sanders um, and his understanding and his notion of the Green New Deal. Uh, because the Green New Deal provides precisely the institutional reframing that an eco- a market economy is going to need to be able to grow again, if we're still thinking about sort of market growth as a sort of way to get people um, tied, uh, in a sense, an increase in salaries and an increase in standards of living. So what does the Green New Deal do? It basically is industrial policy. It's a new industrial policy. It mobilizes resources towards the production of high-speed rail, large-scale public housing, the creation of jobs to battle climate change, the updating of energy grids, the wilding of lands, the creation of union jobs uh, and a tax and a strong middle-class tax base, upgrading of buildings and and homes that need to be greened, um, you know, upgrading of 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 our infrastructure none of this has to be done by the government necessarily it could be done for different schemes in whereby the government is making sure that uh, that this is the industrial policy that's being fulfilled by private firms right whether by putting out contracts or whether by by stimulating those markets somehow um and this is something the market can't again cannot do in, on its own because the market can't think outside of its sort of one-dimensional logic firms don't think like that um, if a market doesn't exist, it's very difficult for an individual firm to create it sort of out of thin air. So there's no profit motive for ex- within existing frameworks for major firms to switch, let's say, from updating uh, to updating the systems that are the at the level necessary for us to survive climate change. Uh, and I would say that given the current threats that we face and the responses you know, by the Democratic candidate, Bernie Sanders is, is who's treated by the media as a sort of crank, is and who's very paltry in terms of radicalism by by sort of social democratic standards. Let's say in Europe, is the only serious candidate in the race. It's no surprise that I think our corporate media has very little interest in actually tackling his ideas thoughtfully. Yeah. I'm all for a Green New Deal in principle. I can't ar- really argue with the specifics of Bernie's plan. I just don't know enough about it. But one thing to flag is that the U.S. represents only 14.6% of global emissions. So that's just why I'm not so optimistic about us solving climate warming anytime soon. It's it's not a matter of domestic policy, but it's, it's really coordinated global action. So I'm not at all saying it can't be done. I just don't feel good about it. And I realize what you're saying something broader about the Green New Deal I think I t- take a little bit of an issue with the idea that Bernie is the only serious candidate. Um, I, I think I think Yang is a serious candidate, whether you agree, agree with his ideas or not. Take someone like Buttigieg, who speaks in rambling platitudes and has never uttered a single creative thought. Like voters think, <laughs> like they voters That's harsh. Are, are, <laughs> That's harsh. 
for Buttigieg, who a lot of people say is the smartest guy in the race. Well, I'm not saying he's not smart. A lot of voters take him seriously based on the polls, but you know, in my opinion, he's by definition a non-serious candidate. Well, you know, I I'll think when I that. when I say that, I think it's it's you know, scientists are telling us we have ten years to to act on climate change, and that the that at some point we're going to be at a point of no return in terms of the effects, the compounding effects of climate change. And I think people don't realize the sort of dire um, place that we're in and the scale of what climate change is going to mean for us as a species. And I don't think, I think a lot of people don't realize how it's going to affect even those of us who live in, in really rich societies. Um, it's going to be, it's going to be questions of things like lack of food, you know, scarcity in terms of food, water, extreme temperatures and extreme weather events, mass migrations of people. It could lead to sort of really cataclysmic sort of war. Um, it's a global problem, as you mentioned. And I think you need the U.S. to be the leader in terms of solving the problem. When the U.S. passes something like a Green New Deal, which totally restructures its economy because the U.S. is shifting its industrial policy from subsidies for oil companies, subsidies for big agro, to subsidies and creating markets for greening the economy, you're going to have ripple effects across the world economy. All the firms are going to have to, around the world, because the U.S. is still such a big player, are going to have to rethink the way they're doing business, the way you could do it to a large extent, I think, within a market framework, even if and this gets us to perhaps the other solution, and I think the one that's more radical, right? And I would be curious to see what Venevav argues about this. And, and actually, I already read the second essay, so I, I do see how he sort of argues be, for thinking beyond the market. But, uh, and we could discuss Let, let me that. just say, I, I agree with you on a, a Green New Deal, and I think the U.S. does need to be at the forefront of this. Uh, I, I'm, I just worry, I don't think... I don't think it's possible to get it done quick enough. I think we're in for like not a very good climate future and we're going to have to come up with, with we're going to be having a different conversation. You know, how do, how do we remove carbon from the atmosphere and try to reverse the tides? But also what are we going to do with all the negative consequences of, of too little too late? But it's, it's absolutely possible. It's absolutely possible. I mean, the fact of the matter is, it's possible if we mobilize at World War II levels. That's the way it's possible. It's it's possible if the biggest, most powerful economy in the world mobilizes to tackle the issue as it would something like World War II. Well, there's scientists there's, who say it's not. We, we can't... The, the current prescriptions are that if we act now within the next 10 years uh, and act fast enough and at the scale enough, we are not going to stop um, climate change, but we can minimize and keep it below right. a certain threshold. And that right. threshold is going to be the difference between manageable, manageable, which means certain parts of the coasts are going to be underwater. We're going to have to resituate people. We're going to have to come up with ways to resituate crops. We're going to have to really coordinate a lot of things and catastrophic. Manageable and catastrophic are two huge things but we can still keep it to manageable and i think it's i actually think it's very self-defeating i think it really really self-defeating to just assume that we cannot solve this when we actually can it the question is do we step up to the plate and solve it 
And that's and and I think what makes it really difficult is something like World War II, where there was no question about it, right? There was no question that people were going to step up to the plate and get behind a sort of mobilization at a at a at a, at a nationwide scale to solve it. But something like climate change, which is abstract, is not. It happens in a distributed, diffuse fashion. Um, and by the way, it happened, and it's completely underplayed in terms of its severity and its effects. And this is, I think, the really fascinating thing, which is, you know, we're a society that supposedly worships science, but scientists are telling us um, the dire effects and we're ignoring it. The fact of the matter is, it is completely possible. I think it's very self-defeating, Jason. I'm sorry to say, to say that we can't when we can manage it. It's a qu- The problem is, though, if we don't in 10 years, then at some point we will cross the threshold between manageable and catastrophic. And it's not going to be, I'm, I'm sorry to say, at that point, it's not going to be a tech solution. It's not going to be a solution of you can go off into the wild and save yourself. It's going to be cataclysmic. It's going to be possibly species-threatening. It's going to be a, a something that we might not live to see the end of, I, I hate to say. And uh, being apocalyptic, but everything I've read from very sober sources, uh, very sober sources that are taking the science seriously, say that this is something that could be cataclysmic. Yeah, my, my intention isn't to say let's just commit suicide here, but it's, <laughs> it's like the the conversation shouldn't just be here's how we're gonna turn things around. It's also well, how do we move people to higher ground? And we need to start thinking a, a little bit more about um, managing the consequences while also talking about you know removing carbon from the atmosphere and other things that we can be doing, other energy sources that we could be transferring to. Again, I don't know the specifics of Bernie's plan, so I'm not trying to comment on that. You know, it sounds sounds to me like we need to do an episode on on the Green New Deal. Yeah, or or not even the Green New Deal on climate change and understand it. Also, I think is a it's really interesting as an issue of communications because uh, it's a, it's a question of models, right? These are scientific models that scientists are putting together, and how do they put together these models? They have to put all these different inputs, and the inputs are things like hundreds of years of information in terms of uh, what they, that they can gather in climate through things like tree rings or measurements of icebergs and their, their shifts or looking at data from um, harvests across Europe, wine harvests. So you have all these, all these inputs that you're putting into a supercomputer and running a model. And of course... It's a model and it's speculation to an extent. You're running a model and you're trying to describe what's going to happen in the future, um, and what and it makes it such a complex process that it's very easy for people to to short circuit the moment of scientists uh, all across the world in different uh, centers running these uh, different very complex models, trying to get this information out and and the distortion of the information, the lack of of, of uh, dissemination of the information. I mean, the information is out there. It's very publicly available, right? Um, it's yeah, well, very publicly you, available. you talked about signaling issues. And you know, we, we may very well be at a crisis point now, but it's not tangible. It's not visceral. Now, I mean, Benavov talks about, you know, possibly needing a feeling of, of some kind of crisis before you can have you know, you need that to 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 stimulate the kind of growth that would throw the economy back into an upward trend. So maybe, you know, when shit hits the fan, 
<laughs> then that's the best opportunity for things to start changing. And whether or not it's too late at that point, I don't know. Well, I mean, you could already say that shit is hitting the fan, right? I mean, just look at what's going on in California. The, it's a state that's on fire every year now, and it's become the new normal. Yeah, or, but even that isn't isn't tied to the science of climate change in the political discourses, right? Yeah. Well, and I think there's and a good so reason a, for that. It's a communication issue, yeah. yeah. It's a communications issue, and I think there's really a, there's a lot. We could study the whole idea, the whole question. It makes it really difficult for a constituency, right? Um when you have such a complex issue uh, that's based on these very complex models that are difficult to explain, that have so much information that goes into them and are very complex, and you have basically 30 different models, all of them with exception of maybe one model telling you that it's going to be catastrophic, right? Um, and that one model gives the opportunity for certain people to come out and say, well, actually, it's not so bad, Um it's a really interesting political question in terms of how, do, how does a constituency relate to something. Um, and it's, as you said, it's not tangible. It doesn't seem tangible to the average American, let's say, um, you know, who's going, who's, who's still living through the seasons and things haven't changed that much. Right. Yeah. Uh, we segued into, into an argument about climate change, but I think these things are related, Jason. Um, we're dealing with things at a scale that is massive, right? A global economy, climate change, systemic issues. And, you know, I, I actually think this is, this is, this gets to the heart of what we're trying to do today is how do you think about, um, these problems at systemic level? And how do you think about it some, with something like capitalism, which is a technology at the end of the day, right? Um, a technology that has functions, to produce, distribute uh, goods and services and has been very successful at doing that in many ways, right? Uh, and how do you rethink it when it seems to be uh, hitting some sort of limits, uh, perhaps? How do you rethink it, reconfigure it, uh, given the fact that it's a political issue, right? That you would, that it would it would be a reconfiguration of the way we organize work workplaces, the way we distribute goods and services, who has power in our society and who, who doesn't. Um, this gets, this is get, this gets us back to UBI, right? I think UBI is interesting. It's very interesting. Uh, it's a, it's, if we could think about it simply as a transfer of, of cap of capital, right? It's a transfer of, of money. Um, it's a way to do, it's, it's part of industrial policy. It's kind of like what the GI Bill was, let's say, where money was given to, you know, f loans and free education was given to, to returning vets after World War II so that they could sort of become, uh, they could become salaried middle classes, right? So the UBI is a specific response to the question, to a problem that we have. However, the question is, can what can it do in the context of a stagnant economy and a stagnant manufacturing uh, sector globally? Well, so um, a few points on why UBI of something like twelve thousand dollars a year might make sense if we accept the automation discourse and in general, and you know realizing that neither of us at this point fully accept the automation discourse. But um, so a few things to consider. It'll create more opportunity for low-income groups to raise themselves out of poverty 
It raises some low-income groups into the middle-class echelon. Uh, within a purely capitalist framework, EBI enables its recipients to take risks, providing extra capital to quit your job and build the business you always dreamed of creating. Uh, it improves access to overpriced pharmaceuticals and education. And some studies show that it even improves our relationships and potentially reduces divorce. Uh, most importantly, it stimulates spending, some of which gets sucked up by Amazon, but much of which <laughs> ends up supporting local businesses without producing inflation. And um, the the inflation part is interesting, but uh, most mm. economists will say, you know, $12,000 a year. You know, compare that to something like what, what a quantitative easing did, and that did not really cause any inflation. Right. Um, inflation has become less and less of, of the uh, scary elephant in the room that you know economists used to make a big deal about in the past mm. um mm. alternatively uh, another recent study shows that uh, recipients of ubi simply put the money away into savings or investment accounts so in an economy where roughly 28 percent of americans report having no emergency funds this is also a good thing uh, yeah uh another thing it can help reduce the growing income gap between the infamous 1% and everyone else without completely ostracizing rich people. You know, so at the end of the day, UBI is just wealth redistribution. But it's an easier pill to swallow than some of the means-tested programs that lack the universal framing of UBI. So that gets back to the communication issue, the political issue. And finally, uh, this intersects with my last point, that uh, UBI is relatively easy to implement there you don't have any means testing there's very little bu uh, bureaucracy and there's very little program management cost and everyone gets their ubi once a month no questions asked so i hate that i have to say this but ubi you know is not a solution really to any problem but it makes the process of labor transformation easier and probably much easier on people so even yang concedes this and by the way yang isn't a one-trick pony i don't know if you've taken the time to review any of, of his other policies one but, um, you know, un unless our plan is to get rid of competitive markets entirely, then we need to find ways to make the markets work more in our favor. And UBI coupled with other policies, some proposed by Yang, may be able to do this for us. So here are two interesting poli uh, policies that I don't think are radical, but nevertheless seek to create major change without upending the profit model. So the first one is an American scorecard. You know, we've spent a lot of time talking about GDP. This is traditionally how we've measured economic success in modern history. But we both know that in spite of the appearance of record high GDP, which is largely a false story, we also see record high income inequality, drug use, depression, mortality, and all sorts of things that you would not expect to find in a strong economy. So instead of focusing exclusively on GDP, we might develop a scorecard with multiple measures, health, life expectancy, mental health, environmental quality, entire vision of economic success to these modernized measures. And our measurements incentivize performance. So um, optimistically, if we change our measurements, perhaps we can influence market behavior. And another thing to think about, you know, we've talked about external externalities quite a bit. So how, how might we internalize negative market externalities? So an externality is a cost or a benefit afforded to the communities or environments in which a company operates. So carbon emissions are negative externalities, for example. So how might we get businesses to reduce their emissions? Well, we can force them to absorb the cost of their carbon externalities through carbon penalties. Companies are profit motivated, so if you, slapped a if you slap a cost on their business, 
they will change their business model to avoid that cost. So this policy is not without risk, but it has potential to incentivize market behavior with positive externalities. So I'll stop there. Do you have any reactions to that? Yeah, I mean, I think I think the idea of using starting to use new measures is actually really important and central to rethinking markets because there's not. I think it's an I think it's an empirical question whether you need to get rid of markets or not to make sort of our societies work for people because there's no reason why you couldn't. Again, if we think about the sort of argument that Benavov is saying, the problem we have now is stagnant worldwide manufacturing growth, therefore no economic growth, therefore uh, deindustrialization, therefore sort of a race to the bottom, and so forth and so forth, right? Uh, and no other sector that's growing. This is because we rely primarily on something like GDP to measure, to measure sort of like overall well-being we're not using other measures what if we weren't tied to growing the economy every year um as a country right what if we started thinking about this as a global at a global dimension and found ways for states to coordinate not just to be competitors in terms of who can get the highest gdp but in terms of hey let's use the market strategically to create a mass consumer base here for certain goods and services. And perhaps the U.S. has a decade where GDP is flat, but um, but it comes, it comes to stay, are stable, well-being is stable, and as you said, like uh, certain measures are good in terms of overall well-being, right? Um, that, I think, would be a radical reway of thinking the way we manage the market economy, mm-hmm. not without necessarily getting rid of the market economy. Uh, on the other hand, you know, I think some of these market incentives, which can be very useful and which, again, they they comprise what I would call industrial policy, which whether we like to believe it or not, has always been around. Therefore, there's no such thing as a sort of free market in a flux of sort of like just markets doing their own thing. Um, some of these externalities, I think we have to think about them in terms of in terms of what you know, what are we trying to accomplish? I actually think, I think the 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 evidence shows that things like carbon, um, like carbon taxes, and things like that, haven't been very effective because what do companies do? Well, they off they offshore their carbon uh, emissions. So Correct. you know, it, so some things it might be helpful, but for other things, I mean, I think just the general the general problem that we're dealing with is one that the market again. Uh, is only going to act within its logic, right? And, and th- so, there may be ways of, of preventing that kind of offshoring behavior as well. But perhaps, I, I, perhaps. I agree. But. but I mean, think about the whole idea of carbon carbon taxing. If you're in a carbon-based economy and you have to grow economies, someone has to pump that carbon out. So it's like, you know, it, it, it just, at a, at a global scale, it's not very... I mean, it's the idea, I guess, behind it is that somehow economies will... Or, Firms by themselves will begin producing green energy, right? Not and and therefore it's move away from uh, off uh, carbon taxing. So if you do it at a global level, perhaps that's different, right? But if you leave open the fact, if you leave it open so that companies can actually offshore um, uh, things like carbon outputs, then you're you're sort of fighting. You're, you're kind of doing a you know you're you're fighting an unwinnable war with your industrial policy. So I think these are really important things that you bring up, uh, Jason, this question of like, how do we measure 
um, a sort of well-being as a society. And, and do, if we tie it specifically to GDP uh, in the context of sort of countries that are always competing against each other, um, sort of classic economics and its in its and its mathematics tells us that you know there's going to be growth forever and stabilization of markets and it's just a matter of sort of competing and sure there's going to be losers and winners but overall everyone's going to win uh this beautiful story is actually not a very if you look at world history it's not actually what is has been the case um you know there's a lot that goes behind being the winners in the market economy in terms of power, in terms of leveraging of that power, in terms of things like uh, um, imperial policy, war, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah. how do we reframe markets? I think it's a really important question, but part of it is the notation of what we're measuring, right? Yeah. So I think that's an important thing to think about. Can we Can we think of smart markets more strategically? Uh, as something that we could wield and create and let them work to do a certain end and then reconfigure them again when when it's necessary to make them work again um, to do what we want them to do and not just tie, let's say, countries to have to be GDP growers, right? All against each other and somehow all of them have hired, you know, right, raise their GDPs. I'm not sure that that's ultimately even probable if there's a, also a limit to growth for instance yeah I'm well, one sure. thing so a lot of uh, publicly traded companies are required to submit like corporate governance reports their um, profitability and things like that and you could require them to start tracking other kinds of performance metrics like the ones we cited before how they are contributing back to their communities what they're doing to be more sustainable and you, if you require all of them to report out on these metrics, at least there's going to be more transparency. So investors will, will be able to be a little bit more um, discriminatory yeah. based on those things. Now, I don't know. Investors might not care about those metrics, so we might not see too many changes. But Well, I mean, it's, you're, you're asking some questions that we could go back and look at specific cases, I think, but at the end of the day, investors and firms are going to care about profit. And uh, that's why they're investing and that's why they're firms. But again, the role of the role of government is to tailor industrial policy to make those firms work for larger social goals that the market can't by itself set. Yeah. And there have been, there are a few companies I'm aware of, like Salesforce, that have been at least trying to tie social responsibility initiatives to the bottom line and it seems like yeah. they've had success doing this mm -hmm. and but i don't know if it's something that every company can have a lot of success with it really depends on what you're selling and what your business model is right, right. So, and who your consumers are so um but you know like i've said many times it's kind of if, if i had to pinpoint any mission for myself it's to figure out how to make businesses do better by people so i'm 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 dedicated to figuring out how to scale that and make more businesses do those kinds of things while yeah. still being able to produce a profit. Well, I mean, I, I don't think that's necessarily incompatible. Um, and maybe at the risk of, again, as you said earlier, beating a dead horse, I think it's again, a question of, 
it's a it's a multifaceted question one of the one of the framing and probably the principal elements has to do with industrial policy right uh yep yep firms are firms are going to do what firms are going to do um and a lot of firms are going to do it better than others and with much more care for their consumers and people than others uh the way we frame markets and the way we create them institutionally and tell them you know give them a sense of what they can't do what what we uh uh, spur markets to do through our industrial policy um, is going to be a huge influence of whether there is the capacity for firms to be good firms in the first place, right? Um, if you if you you know if you're giving subsidies to 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 oil firms, I mean oil firms are going to continue to do what they do. Um, they're not going right. to think about the welfare of the planet or people or whatever, right? Uh, they're going to do what they need to do. To make a profit, uh, if you force oil companies to use their resources to to build green uh, or re- not re- renewable resources or to change their models completely, um, which would take massive industrial policy, then that's that's different. But then what you're doing, I think, is talking about more at the level of maybe different firms that work in different dimensions. But uh, I, I don't think for a second that. Um you know, it, it can be accomplished without the government incentivizing many of those behaviors. You know, if you look right. at how Tesla was successful to begin with, I mean, Musk had a lot of money and he nearly bankrupted himself several times trying to start his businesses, but he also received quite a bit in um, subsidies under the Obama administration, which he was able to pay back in full. Uh, but that was, you know, essential to getting him off the ground running. Right. Right. Well, I mean, that's industrial policy, right? Yeah. And this is what doesn't get talked about in, I think, perhaps sometimes is missed a little bit on our debates. You know, what kind of industrial policy do we want? And something like UBI could be central for it. UBI could be a way to get people to be able to switch between industries and have a sort of base, Um, as you said, but without an industrial policy that somehow creates a framework for growth. UBI could also be something that uh, doesn't change much when people are leaving in, to create their own businesses. And uh, if they do it in manufacturing, there's they're entering a pool of a stagnant market. And if they're doing it in services, services haven't proved it to be the kind of go- growth or economic, uh, economic, the engines for economic growth that uh, that manufacturing has. And uh, the trends seem to show that... Uh, Usually, uh, well, this this is something that Benavov talks about. This is second art, second part of his article, but it has to do with things like usually uh, in services. Uh, there's a trend towards a move towards underemployment. So basically, people, um, how do they make? How do they? How are they more competitive in services? And if you get more people in services, well, they basically take a loss in terms of their income. Um, uh, they have to produce things. They have to somehow produce services at a lower rate. Uh, you get the this, this sort of same problem you get with uh, when manufacturing is stagnant, except that because services doesn't grow at the same rate, it doesn't have you have you don't have the same capacity for value add because you're not building, you're not producing anything, um, sort of a thing. Uh, you're actually end up having to fight for c- competitively, and you have to sort of uh, you have to sort of like be competitive by taking a loss in terms of an income. Uh, in the long run 
So there's, you know, there's a problem there too if the economy is not growing, but services are becoming more. If people that are doing UBI are going into services, uh, it creates another sort of secondary problem. Mm-hmm. So, so would you be for some kind of UBI as a complement to other kinds of policies? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think I think we need large scale, you know, industrial policy that reconfigures the way our markets work, that maybe reframes and tries and does some experimental stuff in terms of markets, maybe um, changes some of the models of the firm as well in terms of giving workers more ownership in terms of the production models that rescales our production models so that maybe we have more localized production and sort of certain goods and services. Um, I think we need to do that also for sustainability. But then you have things like UBI, which is basically, as you said, is a, is a sort of transfer of wealth, which allows people to be more, um, uh, to be independent, to be, to maneuver, to do things and be more, uh, to be more, you know, to be more, to try different things out. Right. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, I think UBI could definitely be the a cornerstone of another, of larger set of frameworks that have to do with re of turning the ship, the large gigantic ship that is the United States economy towards a new framework for industrial policy, for sure. Uh, you know, I think this is the kind of thing that, uh, that right now we should be having every, every smart person in the United States sitting down and trying to figure out how to do right. And presenting as a plan for people to get behind a sort of, a sort of model for state development. Right. What do we want in terms of giving people the freedom to choose and to do things and uh, and uh, and still have how do we want to re totally, you know, we're always talking about innovation and we innovate in things like technology. But how about innovating in things like the workplace? How about innovating in terms of our relationship to the state and our laws? How about innovating in terms of how much people have a say in terms of uh I don't know different parts of their lives that that they might not have uh, said and before. A lot of this stuff is very utopian, but I think it's part of rethinking and rethinking our uh, relationship to work and relationship or relationship to consumption, to production. Hmm. Well, maybe uh, we can end on dystopian. Because, <laughs> um, on, on I thought episode... this was dystopian enough. <laughs> yeah. Well. Let's get more dystopian. In, in episode three, we talked about Bernard Stiegler, who has a very dystopian view mm-hmm. of automation. And I, I would think he, Bernard Stiegler is a proponent of the, of the automation discourse. Do you agree with that? I think, I think to an extent, yeah, I think he sees, I think you're right, but in a different level, in a different level, in the sense that he's really interested, he's really worried about automation of, of what we would, what he would call kind of our perception so that our time, the matrix of sort of our temporal or temporal matrix would be almost automated to an extent that we couldn't really tell past from present from future. So for example, I think a good example of what I mean by that is he's, he's worried about things like if there's, total sort of immersion of a digital world where are very because of the fact that these companies like google facebook etc are really invested in analyze you know getting as much data they can as they can from us and the traces we leave we live we leave in the internet 
and then finding a way to uh almost get ahead of our own in interests our own our own desires right to sell us things that in a way these companies are going to sort of organize our our temporal horizon or uh, a future as an eternal present kind of and i think in that sense he is and you're right he is an automation pro proponent of automation discourse but automation of of experience not of work right yeah well so he's a french philosopher <laughs> essentially argues that yeah because that's important is important the french have a certain way of philosophizing um, <laughs> right uh, that as we become more dependent on automation that we kind of exteriorize into them and that our kind of um we become more vain we become more stupid we, we become less critical less reflective and from a, a stieglerian perspective then a ubi as a solution to automation really fails um, not necessarily in economic terms, but in contributing to a complacency where automation, uh, you know, continues to make us all these horrible things. You know, really, I think what we would need from a St from Stiegler's perspective is some kind of training or retraining, so uh, we can re-interiorize all those things that we're losing. Perhaps we we can have both a UBI and effective education, even though we don't really have any government programs that have proven effective at retraining people who have been displaced by automation or by other factors yet, as far as I know. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't, I, these are two different levels, I think, uh, that we need to distinguish maybe between this, you know, automation of work and auto and, and the sort of loss of jobs and, uh, the, and the problems that come with that and then automation of the realm of the senses, right? Automation of like perception. Well, it's not that there isn't an economic cost to that as well, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there probably is. And he does write a book. He has a book on, on the, I think it's called something like the automatic society or something like that. And he's got also a book titled towards a new critique of, of capital, I think. And which he, and where I think he tries to crisscross these two critiques of his in terms of automation in general, but automation too, in terms of uh, maybe the word isn't automation, but uh, this, this question of a sort of attempt to get ahead of, get ahead of the human in terms of the human's own desires through, through things like algorithms algorithmic uh and large data analysis and things like that um but that's a kind of automation right it's like an automation of time like you know i get up and my little alexa or something says hey you want coffee here's your coffee right oh and this is you know well, i don't know i'm not you know these are like banal examples but they have to do with this idea that everything would be automated in terms of my very my very actions right um my my very desires uh which brings up its own problems um, which might be linked to this question of maybe automation of work and uh, a sort of dulling of the senses and of the capacity to think critically we i think we have to think through that we have to think through those two levels and see how they connect right well i'm channeling my um contemporary ethics 101 where we talked about free will 
and thinking, <laughs> well, if there's no free will, then all of our actions are automated already. <laughs> well, that's that's exactly what I think the problem that uh, that he's trying to tackle, which is a sort of it has a relation to this question of free will, right? I mean, what what free will do you have if your sort of your whole world is automated by digital devices or whatever? Just them right. being ahead of you in terms of your own very desires. Uh, if that's possible, I don't know whether that's empirically possible. It seems to be a horizon point of what what these companies are actually trying to do. I mean, driven by the profit motive, Google, Facebook, who must make money somehow and have this cash cow, which is your data, are looking for every way they can to capitalize on that data, right? So every time you click on something, everything your every website that you go to, every time you sign into a bar on your phone and Facebook, every time you're measuring, you know, um, your heartbeat while you're exercising on Strava or something, these companies are pulling all this data and they're trying to figure out how do we monetize it, how do we slice it, you know, splice it, dice it, um, categorize it, and they have extremely powerful tools machine learning algorithms to do it in ways that we can't even imagine, right? And how do we turn this into a something that can we can monetize? Um, and we're, I think we're it doing brings it up too, a lot Juan. of interesting questions. What's that? We're doing it too. Uh well we're not we're not trying to monetize on it. But every time <laughs> every time you the listener streams an episode of Panoptic from any application, uh we know. We so, do. We so do. We're not out. trying to monetize it yet, but just give us some time and Just we'll figure wait. out a way to do it. <laughs> <laughs> well, not if we keep doing two-hour episodes, though, Jason. So maybe it's time for this us to... might need to be two episodes, but we will reevaluate. Yeah. So I we'll guess see. you, the listener, will know if it's <laughs> one or two episodes when you're listening. Yeah. We know that. I know it's been almost two hours because my voice is starting to get... Uh, my throat is starting to get uh, very dry. Yeah, and it's almost midnight, and I'm exhausted. So, it's been fun, as always, it's though. It's been good. Uh, so I'm sure we'll talk about um, part two, Benavov, eventually. At some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but maybe we'll take a break from this topic and come up with some other interesting topics, like philosophers and firms. Yeah, I think that's a really the, interesting um, topic. The origins of Santa Claus. <laughs> that's a and less interesting else. topic, but, but yeah. maybe we'll t- touch up on that, too yeah all right well if you have ideas for us please um check us out at uh, www.panopticpod.com and submit some ideas make sure you subscribe give us some reviews and likes so the algorithm picks us up and more people can discover us (laughs) then uh yeah automation sounds good automation do you enjoy what you're hearing on panoptic pod Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.